Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we're going to be talking um, about righteousness. This is a continuation of the series we've been doing on trying to get a more Jewish or Hebraic understanding of the scriptures in general. And, you know, the idea here is that culture really matters, especially when you're trying to, you know, we're reading documents that are thousands of years old, right? So the the nuances of words are very difficult to understand. So you really have to understand the culture. Understanding the culture gives a much better ability to understand what they're really trying to communicate and what they're not trying to communicate. And that matters ultimately for our theology here. So when we're talking about something like righteousness, I think righteousness is a very difficult, it's a difficult concept because in our church tradition, I grew up, you know, thinking righteousness, you know, if somebody was righteous, that would mean that they are completely morally perfect, meaning they never sin, right? And that is the biblical definition of righteousness, right? And, um, and of course, that's impossible, right? Which is why the Bible says no one is righteous. And then this is like Romans, you know, chapter three, there's none who's righteous, not even one, right? And I grew up with this understanding, nobody's righteous. And so all of us need to, to get Christ's righteousness because God cannot stand to be with any being that is not righteous, right? Unless you're morally perfect completely, um, God can't stand to be in the same place as you. And, um, you know, this is pretty standard, I think, theology, Reformation theology, that meaning it comes out of the Reformation, which is why we have to get Christ's righteousness, and we get that right through faith. We give him faith, and then there's this transfer of our unrighteousness goes to Christ, who's crucified for it, and then we receive his perfect righteousness, okay? Now, I want to say that this understanding, I think, is flawed. Now, it's not totally flawed, right? I think the essentials are correct. We do need his righteousness, and we do need, none of us are perfect. All of that is true, but the question is, um, the nuances here, I think, are slightly different. And the problem is not when it comes to major theology, per se, because I think all the major theology is essentially the same. But when we're talking about getting into some of the minor doctrines that you know flow downstream from this understanding, that's where we start to run into a number of problems. Okay, so I remember... You know, I would always be confused in the Bible by the way the scriptures use the term righteousness in some cases. So, for example, um, Psalm 71, we see David, and this is what he says. It says, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Okay? And um, that's a fairly common sentiment from David. He says stuff like that fairly often. Psalm 143 says, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. And, um, you know, I it's not that that is really weird. It's just a little weird. It's one of those things that's like, okay, that's that's a little weird. Why does David appeal to God's righteousness when he wants him to save him? Because my logical, you know, the way my, my logic operates there is 
you would not appeal to God's righteousness because God's righteousness is the thing that makes him say, I am perfect and totally righteous and holy and you are not, David, <laughs> right? Like you have all this sin and if you're going to remind me of my righteousness, that's only going to you know, incentivize me to not help you because you don't deserve my help, right? So that's why I always thought it was strange that David would appeal to God's righteousness, okay? Um, that being said, when I was in seminary, I started to study some perspectives of righteousness that argued that really there's a nuance to righteousness that is really um, relational or covenantal, okay? And um, and this comes into a, a, a larger issue, like, why is God always making covenants? What's up with the covenant thing, <laughs> right? Like, we see God make covenant over and over again in the scriptures. And in fact, you know, Jesus makes covenant with the disciples um, at the Last Supper, right? And And we are part of that covenant, right? And what, what's up with all of these covenants? And I started to realize that this whole idea of, you know, relational covenant, you're entering into a certain arrangement of relationship through covenant, and there are obligations of that arrangement, okay? And this started to, you know, I started to see this in scripture a lot more, that th- this idea of covenant is actually very strong, and then what is what are the major versus minor obligations to the covenant? And this is a big deal because I think this is where, you know, more traditional reform theology, it doesn't understand this dynamic, right? So traditional reform theology is just really going to emphasize how every individual human is sinful and therefore they don't deserve to live forever. They don't deserve um, to be with God. And, um, and so God has to purge our sin and make us perfect in his sight, right? And, and then we can live with God. And this has nothing to do with covenant. There's not really a covenantal understanding to any of this, really. It's more a question of perfection, right? God can't stand imperfection, so he needs you to be perfect, and that's really it. Um, it and I don't think that's quite right, okay? I don't think that's quite right. It's not that there's not truth to that. I think there is some truth to that, but it it's not really what the scriptures are saying. And that's the problem here. It's missing the nuance of what the scriptures are actually talking about. And that's because this nuance is not part of our culture. We don't make covenant today, really, right? Like you go to, you know, you go to your church, you don't really enter into covenant. You know what I mean? Like our, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian even is we are actually entering into a type of covenant with the Lord, but that's not really how most believers really understand it. They don't see themselves as making a vow to God, right? It's like, no, I'm choosing to follow Christ, but it's not like a vow. It's not like, you know, it's not like a covenant, right? Like, like covenant was like, hey, we're going to cut this bull in half, and we're going to agree and walk through, you know, the center of this split bull, and we're going to agree that if either of us breaks our promise to one another, then you know, then we deserve to be killed like this, right? It, it's like that level of a serious vow. And we don't do that in our culture, right? Even something like marriage. Marriage is probably the most sacred vow. Most marriages end in divorce, right? Like our our culture doesn't understand like the sanctity of a covenant, 
Like that just seems like something from a different world, and it is. But it's all over the Bible, right? It's all over the Bible. This idea of covenant is very important biblically, and I would suggest because it's very important to God that God is the one who's initiating and making these covenants in many cases, and it's important to him that you keep your obligation to the covenant. And again, see, this is a a slightly different paradigm than this idea that you have to be perfect, right? Like the traditional Protestant understanding is you have to be perfect, and I'm trying to contrast that a little bit with this idea of covenant, right? Because covenant is this idea that we are making a vow that has certain stipulations, but it's it's not necessarily about perfection. And that's where I think that there's a missing here, okay? So a, a, a Hebraic understanding of righteousness is really more about covenant. It's about being in right relationship, okay? And, and that's as opposed to being perfect when we're talking about righteousness. Righteousness is I'm in right relationship because I'm fulfilling the major obligations of the covenant, of our contractual understanding of relationship versus being perfect, okay? And I'd like to suggest that, um, you know, just practically speaking, this is more along the lines of how it actually works in our lives, meaning um, like my children, if I'm in I'm in right relationship with them, um, it doesn't mean that they're perfect, right? Like, I don't need my kids to be perfect in order to be in a right relationship, or we can never be in a right relationship, <laughs> right? And, um, but they're imperfect, but they they fulfill the major obligations of the covenant, and I fulfill my major obligations to them, right? My major obligations as a father are to, you know, to care about them, to provide for them, to protect them, Okay, this this is my job to be here for them. Okay, I can't just go move, you know, somewhere far away and never see them and never send money or anything. Like I have responsibility. I have a I have a covenantal type of responsibility towards them. But that covenantal responsibility does not require that I be perfect. Okay, meaning I can cuss sometimes. All right, and is that wrong? Yes, that's wrong. Okay, but you know that's not a major violation of the covenant. Okay, and and that's true because every father, even very good fathers, have weaknesses in which they commit minor sins, but they're still in right relationship. Does that make sense? Right. You don't. It, again, it's it's not about perfection. Okay, and it's it's similar for our kids. Our kids don't need to be perfect, right? But they do need to be obedient. They need need to be respectful, right? So, so for example, uh, an example of when the right relationship breaks down is if my, my child says, dad, I don't care about what you say. I'm not listening to you at all. Go, go, you know, clean your room. No, dad. Right. And the child refuses to obey the father at all that would be a major violation of our covenantal relationship, right? And in that case, I think the understanding of righteousness, then the child would be unrighteous in that relationship, right? Like they would be violating a a major obligation of their covenantal obligations. And I think that's more along the lines of what the scripture means when it's talking about righteousness. And so, for example, if we go back to David in those Psalms, 
when when David is appealing to the Lord's righteousness, right? Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy, in your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. I now think what he's referring to is this idea that God holds himself to a covenantal obligation to save David when he's in trouble because David is also fulfilling his portion of the covenantal obligation, right? David's portion is to give God faith, right? To give him obedience and trust like a child. David is God's child. He's trusting him. He's obeying him. And then God's responsibility is like the father. He's supposed to protect and provide and all of these things. And that's his obligation because he's righteous, right? And I think that's exactly what David is referring to here, okay? So in your righteousness, because God, I know that you hold yourself to this obligation, that because I'm putting my trust in you, now it's your obligation to save me, right? And to defend me and to rule justly, right? And this kind of obligation is covenantal in nature. And I think that's exactly what David is is concerned about because this is a huge part of Hebrew culture, okay? So there's there's lots of different examples of this. You know, one is um, Tamar. If you know the story of Judah, Judah was, you know, the fourth son of Israel, of Jacob. And um, Judah has this episode where one of his sons, um, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it because I'm, <laughs> but one of his sons, I believe, dies, okay? And his widow has no children, and so the obligation is that one of um, Judah's other sons would marry his brother's widow and have children so that his brother's line would not be extinguished, okay? Now, again, we're getting into another cultural thing because today we don't think like this, right? Like, we didn't go, yeah, like, man, if my brother died and his wife, I have to marry her. I've got to marry her. And I have to get her pregnant. Like, that's my job as a brother. I've got to get her pregnant so that his line won't die out. It's my obligation to continue his line. <laughs> right? We don't think like that today. Right? That That is an ancient type of expectation. Right? And yet, that's part of this culture. Right? And so, the problem here is that Judah didn't want to do that. And if I remember some of the details, it's because I think she married somebody and something bad happened to him. And like the other brother, there was another brother who had to do it. And I think Judas thinks she's like cursed or something like that. It doesn't want, you know, any of his sons to marry her. I think that's what's going on. Um, and if you know the story, Tamar basically tricks him and, and, and pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with him and gets pregnant with Judah, right? And she gets pregnant and then when it comes out, it's very interesting. Judah says, she is more righteous than I. And in this context, like for us as a Western people, we're like, okay, none of y'all are righteous, right? Like what is going on here, right? She is sleeping with her father-in-law and getting pregnant. And now that makes her righteous. And the answer is yes. Why? Because she is fulfilling her covenantal obligations, right? Her covenantal obligations are to continue the line. That's her obligation to her husband, right? That's her obligation to her people, right? 
Her relational obligation to her people is to get pregnant and continue the line of her deceased husband, right? And again, this is this is not 21st century American culture. This is, you know, that's a long time ago, right? That's like you know, 3,000 plus years ago, right? Hebraic culture, okay? But we're reading their documents. And when they're speaking of righteousness, this is the kind of stuff that they're talking about, okay? And that's what I mean. It's, I don't think we understand this culture very well, all right? So um, another example is this idea of Abraham, you know? So Abraham is a very central figure, when we're talking about righteousness. And the key line here is this is, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the way I grew up understanding that verse is like, well, Abraham believed God, He, you know, and then so God was like, hey, Abraham, even though you've got all this sin in your life and, you know, you're not perfect, you're lying to Pharaoh, you're doing all this kind of stuff. Well, even though you're doing all that, I'm basically going to pretend like none of that matters anymore, right? Or I'm going to do something, you know, I'm going to do this thing where I, you know, look forward into the future and see Christ dying on a cross for your sins. And I'm going to go ahead and apply his sacrifice for you now on the basis of your faith. Something like that, right? And I think that's how we tend to do it in, you know, Protestant thought, right? Like the idea is Abraham is not righteous because nobody's righteous, but because he put faith, we're going to apply righteousness to his We're going to credit it to him as righteousness, right? Even though it's not, but we're going to take this, we're going to give, you know, Abraham the same deal that we Christians get today. We give faith and then he gets Christ's righteousness, right? And um, now I think the basic idea there is essentially correct, right? Yes, faith is the standard by which God gives righteousness, right? A righteous standing, but I think the manner in which that happens is really convoluted in kind of the traditional Protestant mindset, right? And I don't think it's exactly correct. I don't think that's how Israelites understood this to work, right? I think the idea here is that when Abraham believed God, that was his righteousness, right? Like the the faith is the major obligation of the, the relationship that God wants. God is looking for relationship with a person that would give him faith. And because Abraham gave him faith, trust, God said, I'm now, I, I consider you righteous because you trusted me. And now, right now, we are in a, a type of covenantal relationship. You see, God does enter into a, a covenantal relationship with Abraham, right? So, the mechanism is all the same, right? The whole, you know, the whole theology that we use today is that faith is, we're saved by faith alone and not according to works. And I believe that 100%, right? Faith is the the mechanism that saves us. That's Paul's point also in Romans 4 and 5 where he's talking about this exact incident. When Abraham believed God, that was his righteousness, right? And Paul's point in Romans is that it wasn't works of the law, that justified Abraham, it was his faith. Faith has always been the mechanism of salvation, okay? I just think the manner in which we tend to understand that is that you know, when Abraham believed God, I think that was his righteousness. That was his righteousness. And what that did is it put him into right relationship, right covenantal relationship with Yahweh, okay? And 
I think that's a huge part of the difference here, okay? Um, all right, another example, okay? In the Gospels, right, it says in Luke 1.5, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. How does that make any sense according to the Reformed understanding of Romans 3? It doesn't make any sense. Okay, This idea that Zechariah is righteous because he observes the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That sounds like salvation by works. That's what it sounds like. Again, but because it's a misunderstanding, okay? Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous because they were in right relationship with Yahweh, and that was evidenced by their obedience to the law of Moses. The law of Moses was revealing, showing that they had a vibrant and living faith within them, which put them into right relationship. That's the idea here, okay? And that's, you know, but here you have in Luke, right, they're called righteous. King David's called righteous. Obviously, Abraham's called righteous. Many Old Testament saints are called righteous. On what basis are they righteous? Because they have a vibrant faith that manifests as obedience. That's exactly what Paul is going to talk about in Romans when he's talking to Gentiles, right, that he's trying to bring out the obedience that comes by faith, right, amongst the Gentiles, right, he wants the same thing amongst the Gentiles now as it's been functioning in Israel for hundreds of years at this point. Okay, so let me take a step here and say, but, you know, Dennis, what about, you know, you're you're making an argument that's a little bit different than a lot of Reformed theology, um, you know, in terms of its understanding of how these things work. And I want to emphasize again, I'm not taking issue with any of the major doctrine of Reformed theology because I am a Reformational Protestant, okay? Now, I am not. what that means is I'm not Catholic, <laughs> okay? I'm not Catholic. I do believe in the essential truths that were preached in the Reformation, but I don't think Martin Luther figured the Bible out, okay? I don't think he, you know, I don't think, you know, he figured the whole thing out. And, you know, if you have any questions to anything, well, we should just go back and study you know, what Martin Luther and John Calvin said because they had the whole thing figured out. I don't think that's true. I think what they did was they had some good revelation for their time that was very important for the church and that has helped us understand more of what the scripture says. But they themselves, you know, the the whole idea of the Reformation was that they wanted to be always reforming, right? Getting closer and closer to the true faith and the true understanding of the Bible. And I think that's exactly what I'm talking about here, okay? So now the question is, well... if that's if that's what righteousness is more about, okay, if it's about this idea of covenantal or relational, um, you know, meeting those requirements, then you know what what about some of these passages? And I think Romans three we have to go there because you know Romans three is if you know when I look at Reformed or Calvinist theology today, it's kind of like Romans three is kind of the heart of Calvinist theology, you know, and then it kind of all goes out from there, right? And so we have to deal with Romans three now. Romans 3 is, um, you know, it, it, it's very famous, right? Because Paul is talking, he's making the case that nobody is righteous in their own, in the in themselves, okay? So here's Romans 3 verse 9. It says, what should we conclude then? Um, do we have any advantage? And he's, by we, he's speaking of Jewish people. Not at all, for we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. 
As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, so... You know, it seems fairly clear here that Paul is saying no one, not even one, is righteous. And the whole idea is that everyone is sinful, which is why everybody needs the forgiveness of God, okay, and the blood applied to them, right, and Christ's righteousness and all the rest of it, okay? Now, I essentially agree with this basic paradigm, but again, when we're talking about the nuances, there's problems here, okay? And... What we have to understand here in Romans 3, Paul's quoting from several Old Testament Psalms, okay? And um, in particular, he's quoting from Psalm 14 and 53. And when we actually go back to those Psalms to see how Paul's using them, okay, we have to employ some principles of, in, in you know, in biblical studies, we call this hermeneutics, okay, which is kind of like the science of interpretation. Like, what are the rules that we use to interpret things? Okay, and one of the rules of interpretation is you can't, you cannot interpret the scripture in a way that violates right what the scripture itself actually is saying in its own context, right? So, for example, you know I can't take a scripture out of context, quote it, and make it say the opposite of what it actually says when you read it within its context, right? And that is exactly what I think is going on here with that interpretation of Romans 3, okay? And let me, let me, because let me go back to Psalm 14, okay? This is Psalm 14. It says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. One. Okay, let's pause there. That's after verse three. So I just read Psalm 14, one through three. Well, that sounds a lot like what Paul's talking about here. (laughs) All right. It sounds, you know, like if we're just doing a casual reading, it sounds like, you know, what the scripture is saying is that there's no one who does good. Everyone's evil. Every single person on the face of the planet. Okay. But there's a problem because if we continue on from here in verse four, look what it says here. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Okay. I, I hope you know, I hope you could follow, because I understand this is kind of hard, especially in an audio type of format, to follow along with this, you know, with the logic of what's going on here, okay? Because if you just read Psalms 14, 1 through 3, it can sound like he's saying everyone on the face of the planet is evil. But there's a problem when you read 4 through 6, the second half of the psalm. It's, it's making a contrast between evil people 
and God's people, right? There's a contrast here, all right? Let me read that again. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though they're eating bread. Okay, so now in verse, four, in, in verse four, what you have is this picture of these evil people and they're committing evil by devouring the Lord's people, right? They're devouring the Lord's people. But I thought we just said that all people are evil. Like who are these Lord's people, right? And, and they're evil because they never call on the Lord. All right, that, again, that's contrasting with the Lord's people who implicitly do call on the Lord, right? Verse five, but there they are, speaking of the evil people, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. Who are these righteous ones, okay? Well, again, it's making a contrast here between the evil people and now the righteous people, the company of the righteous, and again, verse 6, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. So now we have this dichotomy between the righteous people and the unrighteous people. And in fact, I think that's a much better way to understand the entire psalm, even though the first three verses seem, upon a casual reading, like they're just talking about how everyone is evil. I think the psalm, the early part of the psalm is saying, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. Meaning, this is all speaking about fools who say in their heart there is no God. Meaning, it's it's talking about these evil people that are denying God. All right? And again, from a Hebraic understanding of righteousness, these are peoples who have abandoned the covenantal obligations of responsibility to the Lord. And they are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. And again, when it's talking about no one, it's talking about nobody in this group of evil people. Right? And the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And again, I think from our 21st century perspective, well, there's a lot of all language there. The Lord looks down on all. He's really on all mankind. But I think contextually, if you're understanding this contextually, it's talking about this idea that Israel has made covenantal, is in right covenantal relationship with God. Israel is righteous and all the other nations have abandoned their covenantal obligations to the Lord. They've all abandoned the Lord. They worship other gods, right? Therefore, when the Lord looks down on all mankind, to see if we understand, the whole idea is that all the nations have gone astray and that Israel alone is faithful unto the Lord, right? And that's the dichotomy that the psalm is making. It's making a dichotomy not between, you know, there's only evil people and there's no righteous people. That's kind of how the traditional reading of, you know, Romans 3 is. But that's not what Psalm 14 is about. It's making a dichotomy between the evil nations of the earth who have forgotten God, all right, and Israel, who has remembered God. And and in this psalm, they're being oppressed by these other nations, right? These nations have become corrupt, right? And they all do evil. There's no one who does good, not even one in all these nations. And do all do they know nothing? They devour my people. They devour the people of Israel as though they are bread. They never call on the Lord, right? 
But there they are overwhelmed with dread for God is present in the company of the righteous. So God is with Israel. He's not with all of these other nations. Okay? That's what Psalm 14 is about. Okay? That's the idea here. That this is an Israelite mentality. Because again, if you're a Jew... Your whole mentality is that what it means to be a Jew is what we today mean by being a Christian, all right? When we say, hey, this person is a Christian, then what they're saying is, oh, they're in right relationship with God. They're going to be saved. They're going to go to heaven, all of that stuff. They're one of God's people, right? And they're not like all the non-Christians around them, all right? And that's exactly what Jews understood the word Jew to mean, right? What was a Jew? A Jew was a person who was in a was a, was a member of the chosen people of God, right? That they were in right relationship with the true God of heaven and earth who created all things, right? That they were a holy people, right? A nation of, of priests, right? Like all this kind of stuff. We understand this as being Christian today. That's all those terms now reply to Christian. But you have to understand from a Jew, this is what Jews believed about their nation, okay? Now, the, the reason, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going into quite a bit of detail here, but this is part of the problem. This is the misunderstanding of Romans 3, because he's quoting these verses in Psalm 14, but we don't understand Psalm 14, right? And so we don't understand what his point is here in Romans 3. What Paul's trying to do here in Romans 3 is not say how there are no righteous people. In in fact, I'm I'm sure he considers himself righteous, (laughs) right? Okay? The big misunderstanding here is we think that Paul's speaking about there's no people, there's no individual people who are righteous. But Paul's actual point is there are no nations that are righteous. Okay, And he's saying that because he's contrasting the Jewish perspective that Israel is righteous and all Gentiles are unrighteous. Okay, that is the historic Jewish perspective, and Paul's contrasting that. His point, and this is a larger point that he's making in Romans, that God has consigned all nations to disobedience so that he can have mercy on them all, right? So all nations fall into disobedience, and God preordained that, but he has also ordained that through Christ, all nations would be reconciled back to him. Okay, and that's the gospel that God has now, even though previous generations have abandoned Yahweh, through the gospel, God is calling them back, and he has ordained that a remnant from every single nation would be saved and would be preserved for the age to come. Okay, that's the idea here. And we, so when we read Romans 3, we think Paul is saying, um, there's no one who's righteous, no individuals who are righteous. That's not what he's saying. He says there's no nations that are righteous. All nations have been consigned over to disobedience. And instead, right, there are righteous ones who are the people of faith that will come from every nation. Okay, that's what Paul's going to get into as he goes on. That's the dichotomy he's making. To add to that, I, I want to look at Romans 1 because the way that we tend to understand Romans 1 is what Paul is saying in Romans 1 is that all people are sinful, right? And because of that, deserve, you know, condemnation. All people are sinful and because of that, deserve condemnation. And the thing is, there's a lot of truth to that, but that's not exactly Paul's point, all right? If you just actually read Romans 1, the issue is idolatry. Okay, the issue is idolatry. And I think that the way we tend to understand 
Romans 1 as, you know, again, 21st century, you know, American Christians, is idolatry is, okay, it's one sin out of many sins, but there's sin everywhere, and they're all bad, and they're all wicked, and because of that, all deserve condemnation. But again, you're, I think you're missing the nuance of what Paul is actually saying here in Romans 1. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm going to go through Romans 1 a little bit. All right, verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And if you go down to verse 20, it says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. Okay, I want you to see, understand the train of Paul's logic here. What Paul is really talking about here is the sin of idolatry, okay? He's talking about how in past generations, okay, people forgot about God, right? Adam knew about God, Eve knew about God, Noah knew about God, but what started to happen is people started to worship created beings rather than God. They did not consider the knowledge of God, a worthwhile thing to retain. They abandoned the knowledge of God. And because of idolatry, God gave them over to all of their natural sinful desires. Okay? That's what Romans 1 is about. It's explaining how the knowledge of God passed away from all the nations. Why is it that Israel alone retained the knowledge of God? Okay? Well, because the other nations, their ancestors sinned in not passing down the knowledge of God to their children. And because of that, God gave them over to all of their sinful desires. What Paul is doing, he's explaining why idolatry is rampant among the nations, why all the nations are condemned, right? Because they don't have the knowledge of God. They have no hope of resurrection because Paul, remember, he's a Pharisee. The hope is resurrection, that the God of Israel will one day resurrect the righteous, all right, And there is no hope here for the Gentile nations because they have lost the knowledge of God. They've been given over to their sinful desires, okay? And they stand condemned, right, without hope in the world. And this is Paul's paradigm here, okay? And he's explaining h- how this came to be, all right? And again, the issue is we're talking about groups. We're talking about groups. In our modern understanding, we tend to talk about, oh, this means every individual is sinful, Kind of, that's kind of an implication of this, but that's not exactly Paul's point, okay? Paul's point is about how the nations were given over to sin, okay? And why God allowed that to happen, all right? Why? Because all of this is about how Jesus' work on the cross undoes all of this, okay? Jesus is undoing what happened here in Romans 1. The nations began to worship other gods, they started to worship created beings, so God gave them over to them, but now through Christ, God is reconciling the nations to himself. This is the story of the gospel, okay? And again, it's about nations, it's about groups, okay? And I think this is this is the part that, again, gets diminished a lot in our understanding, which makes us misunderstand many verses in the Bible. So, for example, 
when Paul, you know, when the scriptures say Christ became a curse for us, right? Christ became a curse for us. Why? So that God could punish him instead of us and we could go to heaven. I think that's like the way we tend to think of it, right? Like, and I think that there is truth to that statement, but that's not what it actually says, okay? If we look at Galatians chapter three, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Look what Paul is saying here, okay? He's talking about the Israelite blessing coming upon the Gentiles. Well, what is that blessing? Well, it's covenantal relationship with Yahweh, all right? So the idea is that God made covenant with Abraham and with his descendants, and that this is the great blessing that the Jews, right, are proud of this is this is what they they put their hope in right this is the great glory of what it means to be a Jew and what Paul's saying is that Christ died on the cross so that that blessing could come upon the rest of the gentile nations okay again this is the understanding of righteousness okay Israel was in right relationship with Yahweh because there was a covenantal relationship there all right what paul makes pains to say is that doesn't mean that every single israelite all right was considered righteous in god's sight no because righteousness was always through faith but those who had faith amongst israel were god's chosen ones throughout history and now god has opened the door so that it's not just limited to israelites okay but now Men and women of all nations who put their faith in Christ can be part of his chosen people. And that's what Christ died for. Christ died so that the blessing that was previously restricted only to the nation of Israel would now come upon all the nations. Okay? And again, this dynamic of how this is happening, this you have to understand the Jewish understanding of, of chosenness. Right? You have to understand these things. And by the way, this is why the greatest sin, whenever you read in the Old Testament, it's always idolatry. It's always idolatry, right? And I think, you know, we as modern people, we tend to read the Old Testament and we're like, you know, what's the big deal with all this idolatry? Why was everybody you know, worshiping other gods? And number two, why did God care so much? Why is that the sin that God is always rebuking, right? That he's, it's like, if you, you can't read any of the prophets of the Old Testament without hearing about the sin of idolatry right? That this sin is constantly harped on over and over again. And I think we don't really understand it. And again, it's because we don't understand this Hebraic concept of righteousness, okay? So the idea is that at Sinai, Sinai, God made covenant with the nation of Israel before he made covenant with Abraham, but now he makes covenant with the entire nation of Israel at Sinai. And it's really like a wedding ceremony. God is wedding Israel, all right, he's marrying Israel. And again, they're making covenant. And so God promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what that means is that I will protect and provide for you. Okay, now again, for us, we say, well, God, God's over the, God's God of the entire world. He's God of all nations, right? Doesn't he have to provide and protect for everybody? And my answer is that 
there is an aspect where God does hold himself to a sense of, of, of being righteous over judging the whole earth and every human being. But you also have to understand that there's another layer here where God makes a special covenant with the nation of Israel so that they become his favored people. Okay? Israel becomes the special people that he has a special obligation to provide for and protect, right? And all those kinds of things. That, and he does not do the same thing for other nations. He does not. Okay? He does it for them because he makes covenant with them. But, he, but in the same way, they have an obligation to worship him only. That's their obligation. And when they don't do that, then he's strict with them. Right? He punishes them in a way that he does not punish other nations for because they have a covenantal relationship with Yahweh, and that is their great obligation. The major obligation is to refrain from idolatry, and idolatry is constantly likened to spiritual adultery. Right? When Israelites worship other gods, it's considered adultery in the Lord's eyes. Right, because he was, they were prom, they promised as a people group, and again, this is something that is hard for us to understand as modern people, is because we tend to think of it as like, well, everybody gets to choose what they want to worship, and you know, how can God hold an Israelite responsible for a covenant that his great 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 grandfather made, and now he is responsible to that covenant? And I have to say, that's how it works with God, right? This isn't how we tend to understand things as modern peoples, but God works like that, okay? Meaning, like, what are some ramifications of that? That means my obligation, okay, is to carry on the lineage of faith of my people group. Let me put it to you another way. In in Ephesians, it says, Fathers, bring your children up in the fear of the Lord. Fathers, bring your children up in the fear of the Lord. That means that I am to teach my children to fear God. Right? That's my covenantal obligation. That's my responsibility as a father. But I want to say that flies in the face of modern thinking. Okay, Modern thinking is that your religion makes you happy. So everybody has the freedom to choose their own religion. Okay, So if I force my religion on my children... From a, from a 21st century perspective, they're like, that's so evil. That's so wrong. You can't force your beliefs on anybody. But that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. It tells us, bring your children up in the fear of the Lord. Teach your children to fear the Lord. Okay? That's my major obligation as a father. All right? And if I don't do that, then I've failed my major obligation as a father. All right? And again, what's the obligation of children? Children, obey your parents. Why? Because this understanding of God has to be passed down, right? The fear of the Lord has to be passed down to the next generation. And both both parents and children have an obligation, one to teach the revelation, one to receive the revelation. This is this is why it's a major sin to be a rebellious child. Because then the knowledge of God doesn't get passed down and then Romans 1 repeats itself, right? Romans 1 repeats itself. This is why rebellious children are are condemned so strongly in Scripture. Because it breaks the passing of generational wisdom and generational blessing. Right? It kills that generational transfer. All right? Why? Because God thinks in corporate groups. What does it mean? My children have a responsibility to the faith that I have. To my faith. My children 
have a responsibility. And again, why? Because this is a Hebraic understanding of righteousness. These are part of the covenantal obligations, right? And again, in you know, in our modern Christianity, we just tend to think of sin, sin is sin. All sin is evil, all sin is bad, and but you're missing the nuance here. No, some sins are worse than others. It's very important to understand this, okay? If you have an Israelite, like David, let's say, who is extremely faithful to give God trusting loyalty, then what happens? Even when he commits otherwise pretty major sins, like committing adultery, like murdering somebody, these are major sins by anybody's standards, right? And yet, David is still shown a lot of mercy and grace, all right? By contrast, what happens to David to what happens to Saul, right? Saul is, is in a lot of ways, a very pathetic figure in Scripture in the sense that he evokes your pity, right? Because it's like Saul, he just, he doesn't kill, you know, an, an Agagite king, right? Like God said, kill him. He doesn't, he doesn't kill him. He shows him mercy. From our perspective, we're like, that doesn't seem that bad. You know, like I understand, like, you know, okay, the, the command was to kill. He didn't kill. He was just trying to be merciful. Isn't that kind of in the nature of God? What's the problem here, right? Like, what? but what's the punishment? The punishment is that God says, I've rejected you from being king. <laughs> right, he takes away, he takes it away. It contrasts that with David. David, right, David commits heinous sins, adultery, murder, and yet God not only promises him the kingship, but promises that the kingship will never leave his lineage. All his children, right, will share in the kingship. Like, contrast David and Saul here. The contrast is vast. And I'm saying that we won't understand why God acted in this manner unless we understand Hebraic righteousness. David was far more righteous than Saul, okay? It, and, but you have to understand, David murdered far more people than Saul did. <laughs> right? He murdered far more people than Saul. David was a man of bloodshed. He killed so many people. When if if we were to analyze David by modern standards, this guy would be a megalomaniac, you know, mass murderer. <laughs> right? This guy this guy raided he raided towns and killed all the women and children so that there would not be reports that he raided those towns because he was lying about it right? He was lying. He was telling, you know, one of the, the Philistine kings, oh, I'm raiding Israelite towns, right? But he was lying. He was not raiding Israelite towns. He was raiding non-Israelite towns, and he was killing everybody to hide the lie. That seems pretty evil, right? That seems pretty evil. But you don't understand. It's, he's righteous. David is righteous. Why? Because he's holding to the major obligations of his covenantal relationships. His obligation is to Israel. And he's being faithful to Israel. He's not sinning against Israel. Okay? Again, this is hard for us to understand because we are thinking about, you know, just being good and evil in in universal type of understanding. But God doesn't think quite like that. All right? His understanding of righteousness is much more based on this idea of covenant and relational obligation in this sense that we see is revealed in Scripture. So for David, for him to be killing Gentile men, women, and children is actually more righteous than Saul showing mercy to a Gentile king when God demands that he die. Do you understand like how this works? It's, it's a different understanding of righteousness, all right? The 
the nuances are different here. Okay, another example of this is um, Isaac, Isaac's children, right? Jacob and Esau. All right, so Esau is one of the figures that is warned about, right? The author of Hebrews, you know, says, don't let anyone um, be godless like Esau. Make sure there's no one who is godless like Esau. I think it's Hebrews or Peter, I can't remember. Um, But Esau is held up as somebody who is extremely unrighteous, all right? And, you know, same thing. When we read the story of Esau, it's hard for us to understand exactly what he did that was so bad. He's like starving to death, (laughs) right? And his... And his brother says, hey, I'll give you some stew if you give me your inheritance or your birthright, right? And we don't have inheritances and birthrights today. So we're like, okay, but he's starving to death, right? Or he's like really hungry. Like, what's the big deal here? But scripture condemns this so heavily. And the question is why? Because Esau was dishonoring the covenant. Esau dishonored the covenant, Right, that there is this covenantal blessing that he is the heir of, and he considers it not that important. He's not willing to go hungry for the sake of that blessing. Right, he's he doesn't value it, and this is something that is unforgivable. It actually says that he sought with repentance. Right, he sought he sought it with tears to undo what he had he had done, but he could not. Right when he wanted the blessing from his father, um, it had passed him by. It was too late, even though he repented. And you know, we have this theology in Christianity that well, you know, and everything can be undone, right? Like you could just as long as you repent, like it's fine. But that's not true. That's not true. Okay, like if if you commit certain sins, can you repent? Will that mitigate it? I, I think that there's a degree where it can mitigate it. Right? But we see clear examples in Scripture uh, when people try to repent, but it's too late. It's too late. The time for repentance is over. Okay, And we see that with Esau. He so dishonored the covenant. And this is such a violation of the standards of righteousness. And on, on the flip side, we see Jacob. And Jacob you know, is held up as a model of righteousness. But when we look at Jacob's life, this guy... You know, it doesn't seem like he's a good model of righteousness as we traditionally understand it. This guy's like lying to people. He's deceiving people. He's tricking them. All this kind of stuff. Most of the story of Jacob's life is him deceiving and tricking and lying to people. It's like, how is this person a paragon of, why why is this person a model that we should follow? And the answer is because he's righteous, because he honored the covenant. Right? He's righteous because he honored the obligations of the covenant. So understanding this paradigm of righteousness is really important because this is, again, the, the paradigm of righteousness that God functions by. One of the ramifications of this is how we treat Christians today. Right? We understand God expects us to treat Christians differently than non-Christians. Why? Because Christians are his people. There's a difference, okay? And because and, someone's gonna make the argument, like, aren't all you know humans God's people? And there is a sense in which that that's true, but the covenants are different, right? All humanity exists under the the Noahide covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah, right? But those who are in Christ, right, are living under the new covenant made with with Jesus, and and the privileges of that covenant are far greater, right? 
but also the obligations are far greater, right? Well, what happens when a Christian abandons his Christianity? Well, the punishment is far greater. This is something that we don't talk about because we don't understand the biblical concept of righteousness. We don't understand how these covenantal, you know, obligations affect us. But I tell you, the Bible is full of the stuff, and this this is how God thinks. All right, this is how God thinks. All right. All right, so how does this affect all of us? Okay, so here's what we have to here's what we have to understand. What God is looking for is faith, trusting loyalty. All right, and I'm I'm, I'm in the future. I'm going to do an entire episode just on why faith should be understood as trusting loyalty. All right, but this is all part of it here. Okay, when we put our faith in Jesus, that is our righteousness. Okay, we are we are considered righteous on the basis of our faith because faith is the thing that God really wants. Faith is what makes a person righteous. All right, when we put our faith in the one that He has chosen, who is Christ, okay, we enter into a covenantal relationship, right, with Jesus. What that means is that as long as you continue to give Jesus faith, you are in right relationship. Right? You're righteous according to the obligations of the covenant. Okay, That means when you commit sins, grace is shown for you. You don't, are, you don't get kicked out of the chosen people right? as long as you have faith. Now, if, that, if your decisions to sin against the Lord and against people and stuff like that, if they grow to a place where it becomes rebelliousness, right, then absolutely you're not in, reli- in right relationship with the Lord. Okay, and you know the analogy that I use in in this situation that I think can help people understand is you know let's say you know you are a king in ancient times, all right, and you have a knight, all right, and your knight is super loyal to you, right? He is super loyal to you, but your knight has a drinking problem, <laughs> all right, and sometimes the knight will get drunk, all right, and he will assault people, and and that's evil, all right. Your knight has some problems, right? But if you're confident in his loyalty, you can forgive your knight for a lot. You can show him grace. Now, you might still have to discipline him for sure, right? You might still have to punish him, but he's still yours. And why? Because on the basis of his loyalty, because his because he's loyal, he still has great value to you. He's still a cherished member of your household, even though he has some problems, okay? And I'd like to argue that's exactly the way in which God treats us, all right? If we give him loyalty... He's willing, right, to forgive and be gracious for all manner of minor sin and stuff that we struggle with and all this kind of stuff. There's still obligations, right? We still have to repent, right? And we still have to struggle against sin and all this kind of stuff, okay? But the issue is the faith, right? The faith is what makes us, is the primary component that keeps us in a right relationship with God. Okay, and I think that this should help us understand what our obligations. Because I I run into many Christians all the time. Who number one, either struggle with, oh my gosh, if I commit this sin, am I out of right relationship with the Lord? Right? Am I? Does that mean you know I'm sinful? Or how do I interpret scriptures like you know if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will God forgive your sin? Right? Because again, the 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 traditional Protestant understanding is this idea that you have to be perfect and blameless, and the only way you get that is through Christ's righteousness. Okay, now. I agree with this, but I think, again, the misunderstanding is, do you get Christ's moral perfection? Meaning, when God looks at you, can he just no longer see any of your sin, and he just sees Christ's righteousness? Like, you look perfect to him. 
And I would argue, no, no, there's nothing in Scripture that actually says that. And that's delusional, right? It's, if I, the way I always put it is, if I can see your sin, God can see your sin, okay? Right? Like, God sees the sin of so many people in the Scriptures, okay? And it's precisely because this idea that, you know, you're, you're hidden in Christ does not mean, right, does not mean that God can't see your sin and that you have somehow received Christ's perfect moral goodness. That's not what it means. Okay, now it means that you receive a righteous standing. Okay, now traditional Protestants understand this, right? Many of them do, where you have a righteous standing in Christ, right? That's fine. That's a fine understanding. Okay, now if we're talking about the nuances of what that means, does that mean that you are perfect in the sense that there is zero sin attributed to your account? I don't think so. That my guess would be I don't think so. It's possible. But there, there's there's too many problems, uh, you know, and it would take me a whole other episode to go into all of the problems, I think, with that view. The problem is that for many people, especially in the more, you know, heavily reformed camp, that's their entire understanding of salvation, right? The only way you can be saved is to be completely morally perfect because that's how they, they're defining righteousness in all, in all these passages. And that's part of the problem here, right? What this does is it leads to mass confusion. All right, and there's so much confusion in Christianity. This is where you get so much hypergrace theology, by the way. Okay? Hypergrace theology, you know, I've I've heard it taught, you know, that you only have to repent one time. You repent one time, you know, at when you're saved, you repent for being a sinner, and then all of your future sin is forgiven. Right? And I that's that, that, number one, I think that's completely wrong. I think that's completely wrong. It's a misunderstanding of all these passages. But so many people believe that, which is why there's so much confusion over this. Well, I sinned. Am I forgiven or am I not forgiven? And my argument is, no, you're not forgiven unless you repent. You have to repent in order to be forgiven. But then how can I be a Christian and have sin and still go to heaven if I'm not forgiven? Right? That's where, where all the confusion comes in. And then so you have to go, well, then you really are forgiven of, of all of your future sin. And that's when you get into all this hyper-grace theology where you say, how, how can you make a distinction between one sin and another sin? And then if you if you say the sinner's prayer, and then you know, then you're good and all of your future sins are forgiven. And, and there's mass confusion over this issue in the church. All right? And I'm going to argue it's because there's a misunderstanding of what righteousness really means. Okay? It's not just covenantal obligation. It's just that that's a that nuance is very important to understand when we're when we're understanding right these you know how these scriptures are to be interpreted. It's essential, and that's and that's my point here. You have to understand Jewish culture, okay? You have to understand Jewish culture. So my my encouragement is that hey, you might be struggling with sin. I just want to say, I, and I think that's okay. All right, I think struggling with sin is fine as long as you have a vibrant faith. All right, as long as you have a trusting loyalty to Christ, and and that aspect of loyalty is actually really important. Okay, like I said, I'm gonna do an entire episode on this, but I have to give a little foreshadow. Like the loyalty part really matters to God. All right, the loyalty part really matters to God. When you have all of these churches, especially these super liberal churches, and you know. And they're like a Christian church, but they're they're trying to be super Christian by being inclusive, right? So if you're if you're Muslim, if you're atheist, it doesn't matter. You're all welcome to the church because this church is really just about sharing the love of Jesus, right? And the idea is that we're looking at Jesus as the model of love, 
and we're trying to walk in Jesus' way, and that's really the idea of the church. That is that is a complete misunderstanding. That's a complete misunderstanding. All right, that is not a Christian church. That's a humanist church. All right, that is that's 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 turning Jesus into right the humanist model, of, like the the humanist exemplar of love, but he's not. Okay, no, Jesus promises he's going to return and judge. Right, he's going to judge all the nations. Right, and he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and those who do not, you know, kiss the sun will face his wrath. Okay, like all of that gets thrown out the window in the humanist par- paradigm. But again, it's because we don't understand this. These these Western understandings of righteousness have become so you know ingrained in the mind of the church that it creates so much confusion in all of these Christians. So I'm trying to give a little bit of a more Hebraic understanding of righteousness. I hope that was helpful. Feel free to let me know. You can um, email me at dennis at therighteousremnant.org. God bless. See you next week.